Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Heather. I'm an alcoholic. All right. <laughs> well, we'll just, um, I was just curious because Dick asked me what I'm doing speaking at a young people's meeting because uh, <laughs> I'm not really that young anymore. And uh, I guess it's because of what my sponsor once told me. I, I said, I'm not sure that I really want to get old. And he said, you don't need to worry about it because you can't get old if you never grow up, and there's not a lot of danger of you ever growing up. So I'm glad to see there's a lot of us in here that have grown up. Um, I have uh, two stories. One is uh, what it was like before AA, and one is what it's been like since AA. And uh, to me, the recovery is the most exciting story. It's not the most dramatic, but it certainly is the most exciting for me, because I remember most of it. And uh, so I won't uh, bore you with the gory details of, uh, of my, alcohol, my alcoholism. It could be loosely summed up, much like George was talking about earlier tonight, as just spending money I didn't have, doing things I ought not to be doing, with people I ought not to be doing it with. And I wasn't um, a kid a mother would want to be proud of by any stretch of the imagination. There was really no excuse for that. I'd, I'd like to say it, I had lousy parents, but I don't, you know. Um, my first drink wasn't, um, I, I don't remember planning it. It wasn't a, a big deal, except that it turned into a big deal. My first drink was my first blackout. It was the first time I stayed out all night. It was the first time that, uh, first time that a lot of things happened to me, and uh, because it was a blackout, I don't remember them happening, but I was certainly advised of them. <laughs> but I didn't even know that anything was wrong, you know. Um, all I knew was that everything went better with booze, and I learned that that night, and it stayed that way. The first time that uh, I'd heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd be about six. I have an uncle who's probably about 40 years sober by now. And I used to think AA stood for Anglican Angels when I was little. And then uh, by the time I was 15, things had gone real sour between 13 and 15. I didn't grow into my alcoholism. I just blossomed immediately. And uh, in those days, they didn't have treatment centers, and you weren't allowed to be a teenage alcoholic. You were a behavior problem, you were a juvenile delinquent, you were any number of things, but they didn't recognize uh, teenage alcoholism then. And if there were treatment centers, they weren't putting 15-year-olds in there. So I got locked up in the booby hatch, and I didn't get to a nice little psych unit. I went straight to the nut house. And it was a good place for me because uh, my alcoholism worked pretty out loud and up front. 
And that's where I attended my first AA meeting. And really, I only went for change of scenery. And I, you know, because I had tired of shuffling up and down that hallway. And there wasn't anybody on that ward who made any sense at all. And I really hated time to brush our hair, dearie. And so I went to this AA meeting. And I looked around, and as, as I look back now, it was really strange, because I thought, yeah, I'll probably wind up in AA. I, there wasn't any argument in my mind about it at the time, so I'm not sure how much denial I really had, except that I thought, I'll come back later, because some of the people there were really old. They were around 35, just like I am now. <laughs> And I thought, you're not going to beat me out of 20 years of good drinking time first. I'm going to get out of here, and it's going to be all right for a while. And, yeah, I'll come back when I'm really old like you guys and burnt out. Nothing better to do than sober up anyhow. And uh, I thought serenity was uh, synonymous with senility, where you just sort of went jibber-jibber and had a silly smile on your face and sat in your rocking chair a lot. I, I really had no idea of what they were talking about that night, except that I did have a sense that I would be back. I had great plans for me. Uh, most of them included drinking. I really liked drinking. You know, I didn't quit because I didn't like drinking anymore. I quit because I didn't have a whole lot of choice other than uh, more of the pain and the consequences of my drinking. Anyway, none of my plans came true. Uh, what happened eventually, to make a very long, silly story short and silly, was that when alcohol stopped doing for me what it was supposed to do, I jumped into some other drugs and became hopelessly addicted to those as well. The drug uh, that I particularly liked was speed because it did a lot of the same things for me that alcohol did, except that I didn't smell bad and I didn't have hangovers, and I didn't have to waste time sleeping and eating. I could just party straight through. So I went to AA intermittently for eight years before I finally got sobriety. And there was all kinds of reasons why I never got sobriety, and I don't know how to do a whole lot right, but I sure know what you ought not to do. Maybe I'll share that with you tonight. And one of the things that I, I didn't do was anything I was told, because I was pretty bright, and I was very different, don't you know? And in the group that I attended, there's no question I was different. The next youngest person was about 45. Uh, I was the only girl in that group, which I liked. Uh, they were all in business suits, and I was in desert boots and buckskins, and... They used uh, two-syllable words, and I used one or two four-letter words. So we didn't have a lot in common. But they were taught that they had to be patient and tolerant, and so they gritted their teeth and put up with me. And I had periods of uh, what I like to call dry runs, you know. That's that teeth-gritted sobriety. It's just so wonderful to be sober. Yeah, I really like that. Oh, joy, another meeting. 
I didn't like anybody in AA. I thought they were, uh... Well, I had a lot of explanations for what they were. <laughs> but I kept going back. I kept going back. And lots of times it was to stay out of jail, and sometimes it was to stay out of nut houses, and sometimes it was because I was too broke to drink, and all kinds of reasons, but it never was because I wanted sobriety, and even the last time I didn't want sobriety. What I wanted was not to go to jail and not to keep living the way I was living, and if sobriety had to be part of it, okay. So I really settled for what I considered to be the lesser of two evils. I, I didn't, uh, if I had waited till I woke up one morning and said, Jesus, great day to join AA, I could hardly wait to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, wherever that might be, I'd probably still be drunk. All I know is that by the time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous the last time, I weighed about 80 pounds. I'm five foot six and no heavy weight now, so you can imagine what 80 pounds looked like on me. It was, I should have worn a sign back to Biafra, you know, it was really, really bad. I had the concentration span of a gnat and the personality of a rattlesnake because all my nerves were all over the kitchen floor. Because, see, for me, drinking wasn't my problem, it was my solution. And I, I include in that all the other drugs that I, I messed around with. It was my solution. So when everybody would say to me, can't you see what that's doing to you, Heather, I would respond with, you don't understand me. And I was absolutely right. They didn't. Because my perception was, can't you see what it's doing for me? It's the only thing that makes my life palatable. It's the only thing that makes, uh, makes the world okay for me. And when I came to AA, and I've heard many people say that they started to feel better when they came to AA, I felt worse. I didn't have a new solution yet. You know, and I kept dragging this 80-pound carcass to meetings, uh, hoping it would come through the seat of my pants off the chair, I guess. Uh, I didn't know whether if you just went to enough meetings that you should get well and you should get happy, and I wasn't getting well and I wasn't getting happy. Well, there was one fellow in our group that I had absolutely nothing in common with at all. And as I look back now, I'm glad I didn't. I needed direction, I needed it badly, I needed to upgrade the way I was living. And if I'd have sought out a group where it was full of people just like me, I'd have had no goals to strive for. And if I would have uh, picked a sponsor that wasn't any better off than I was, I, would, I wouldn't have had anything to look up to and grow towards, so I'm kind of Glad that I found this fellow. We couldn't talk a lot about drinking experiences because we had very little in common. He was a married man with kids my age. He worked in the broadcasting industry. He'd worked all his life. I didn't drink and work at the same time. I couldn't seem to do both. And I didn't drink and go to school at the same time. You won't have any trouble understanding me tonight because I only have an eighth grade education. So I, I can't talk in big words anyhow. I had nothing in common with him except that I saw something in him. And as I look back now, what I saw in him at the time was really deeply spiritual. And I'll share it with you. He had a car. 
<laughs> he made a good buck and he didn't live in a bootleg joint. And that's what was attractive to me at the time. I didn't know anything at all about spiritual values. I didn't know anything at all about being a person of any substance. I could only see the material things that he had. And funny enough, this guy didn't seem to care much about those material things. That was never what he talked to me about. I wanted to talk about how to swing a deal to get a car, and he wanted to talk to me about step one. And we were missing each other a lot. When I came back that last go-round, it wasn't the fear of death that brought me in. It was the fear of living another 20 years like I just spent the last one. That's what worried me. I didn't think I was going to be lucky enough to croak. It seemed to me that every time I OD'd, I'd wake up and I'd say, Oh, no, here we go again. I don't think I ever did it on purpose, but I was always disappointed when I came out of those things. Because life really held nothing for me except more of the same. I didn't, uh, I didn't hang around nice people. I got in way over my head. I, I got it in my head I wanted to be a gangster. I'd watched too much of Elliot Ness, I guess. And uh, so I looked for people that I thought were gangsters. And I wanted to be one of them, except there's just one small problem. I'm a coward. <laughs> and I just wanted to play on the fringes. Well playing on the fringes took me out of the society that my parents expected me to live in. And so when I got to you people, there was much more for me to learn than the steps. I had to get through a sentence without a four-letter word. I didn't even know what a bank account was, uh, how, you, how you arrange that. I couldn't so somehow get it through my head what what the connection was between writing your name on a piece of paper and an amount on the line and you hand it to the teller and they give you money. I couldn't figure that one out at all. It, it didn't make any sense to me. So we were starting right at those kinds of basics. I didn't know who was running the country, much less care. And that may be wise on my part. I'm not sure that <laughs> having worked that out was... <laughs> to my best advantage, but I hadn't read a newspaper. I mean, why do you need to re read a newspaper when you live in a blue lighting joint? I had no concept at all of how you folks lived. So there was a lot of learning for me to do, and it seemed insurmountable to me, just insurmountable. Well, my sponsor said, you're going to need one thing, and it's the only thing you're ever going to need, but hear me well, you will need this. That you're going to need willingness. And he said, would you like to tell me what your idea of willingness is? And I gave him some description of willingness as I understood it. And he said, no, that's not quite what I'm talking about. And I've never forgotten this, and it's carried me through to this very day in my AA program. Willingness is doing something despite the fact that you might not want to. And I don't know one of these steps in this book that I wanted to do. Not one. I'm not sure that there was ever one meeting I wanted to go to. And so it was very important to me that I understood what he meant by willing. 
because I had to ask for the willingness. I just didn't have it on my own at all. The first thing that he suggested to me was that I get a big book. And I knew all about the big book. I could quote it to you chapter and verse. Did so in the bootleg joint fairly frequently. Loaded. It meant nothing to me. I couldn't figure out how that book had anything to do with my life at all. I understood the words, but I didn't understand what they meant for me. And that was another key that that was important for me. That was one of the main values of my sponsor in the beginning. He made that book live inside of me. Because all I was reading it for was uh, I knew I was supposed to read it. But I didn't know how that translated into my life and my world, my feelings, my behavior, my actions, my ideas. He said to me that that book would explain to me precisely how to recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And I said immediately, of course, I'm not in a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And he said, let me introduce you to a mirror. We'll get you started. He said there were clear-cut directions, and he said that elimination of my drinking was just the beginning. And I did understand that elimination of my drinking was just the beginning. Because in those dry spells that I had in AA, if that was sobriety, you could keep it. I'd just as soon be loaded. It was horrible. I didn't fit with the drinkers anymore, and I sure didn't fit with the active AA people. I was just nowhere. I'd never been so lonely as when I was having my dry spells. I was a fringe member of Alcoholics Anonymous for so many occasions. So he asked me one day what I thought being in AA was all about. And I didn't really have an answer for him, and that's where we began. He said to me, what do you want out of life, Heather? Well, my answer was, what's available? I, I guess I wanted a list of things that I could have. And he said, let me rephrase that. What don't you want out of life anymore? Well, I had a real firm handle on what I didn't want. And that served me well. It still does. I know exactly what I don't want. I don't want to be lonely again. I don't want to be full of fear again. I don't want to be full of resentment and hatred again. And I don't want my feet firmly planted in midair ever again. And as long as I remember what I don't want, then the world's my oyster. Because that means that anything good that comes my way, I can take full advantage of. Because then I'm not narrow. My mind isn't closed to new ideas. He suggested to me that I had to fully concede to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. I knew the words. In court, all you got to do is say you're an alcoholic. You beat the beef, right? I knew how to say I was an alcoholic. That was one of my more functional tools. (laughs) But to really concede to my innermost self that I was alcoholic was another story. I didn't know what that meant. Well, I can give you an example of what it means to me. When I was uh, traveling about every now and then, young men would ask me out. Hard to believe, I know, but they would. And I'd be on a dry spell. 
And I thought that when you were on a dry spell, you couldn't go out. (laughs) To me, sobriety and being housebound were the same thing. And your only TA, temporary absence, was to go to meetings. No wonder I was enjoying my sobriety so well. And so I'd, when the phone would ring and somebody would ask me out, I would say to them, no, I can't, I'm being sober right now. <laughs> and that would make not a lot of sense to whoever was calling. They'd say, well, that's fine, let's go to a show. A show? For TV's for. And the minute I'd be out the door... I think, maybe we should have a couple of drinks before we go to that show. And then I'd I'd toss that around in my head, and then I'd say to this chap, well, we could have a couple of drinks, but you've got to guarantee me I'll be home by midnight. See, I had a mother that thought you turned into something very different at midnight. She was always very concerned with a clock. And he would guarantee me we'd be home by midnight. So we go for a couple of drinks before the show, and he would say, it's time to get going to the movie now. And I'd say, so why are we going to the movie? I'm happy where I am. So being a young man of manners, they'd say, okay. And we'd sit there and we'd drink. And then, true to their word, midnight, come on, Heather, I promised I'd get you home by midnight, let's go. And I'd say, get lost, I'm drinking. So I could say I was alcoholic all I liked. But I didn't really understand what it meant in my life to be alcoholic. Because sometimes I would wind up sitting on the curb at 5.30 in the morning or wind up in a drunk tank saying, how did this happen again? And that guy would be home safe in his bed and I'd hate him for it. It suddenly would be all his fault. And so for me to fully concede to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic means that regardless of what anybody else is thinking, doing, or saying, there are some things that are out of the question for me. And that's still true in my AA program. I used to say to my sponsor, how come some folks can go to AA once a month and stay sober? And I have to go two to three to four times a week or I'm a basket case. That's not fair. And he said, well, let me explain something to you, Heather. When you're young and idealistic, you want everything to be fair. When you're older and a whole lot wiser, all you want is a little mercy. (laughs) Then he said to me, in your book, see, I've found every answer in this book. I haven't found it by myself. My sponsor has always had to make it clear for me where to look in this book. And in this book it said, if you are seriously alcoholic as we were, there is no middle-of-the-road solution. And he said, I don't know, maybe those other folks aren't as seriously alcoholic as you are. You want to take another run at it? Do you want to take the chance? So fully conceding to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic and all that that means in my life, and all of the dangerous situations that are true for me that may not be true for you are not things that can be compromised. 
I own my own alcoholism. I can't, I can't, I can't live the way somebody else lives their program. And other people are very comfortable with the way they live theirs. I was not comfortable for a long, long time. And the program that I'm comfortable with now is the solution contained in these 12 steps, and I don't mess with it. I got alcoholism. I don't have alcoholism. I didn't outgrow it. But the minute that I say I'm too tired to go to my meeting, I'm really saying I've got alcoholism. Because I sure as hell wouldn't have pulled that in my first month of sobriety. I wouldn't have dared. So why would I pull it in my fourth year, my fifth year, or my tenth year? The same problems are true of me. The same, the same characteristics are true of me. And when I start that kind of nonsense, I don't seem to know what the difference is between an inch and a mile. So it's just better for me if I don't take the chance. Because I rationalize a lot of things. And I can work a lot of things out to my advantage on the surface, and you would never argue with me, because it sounds very logical. But it's wrong for me. It doesn't fit for me. And I know that. I get that little twitch in the bottom of my tummy. Every time I start deciding, I'm going to do it my way. So fully conceding to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic meant certain things had to be different for me than for everybody else or what everybody else thought. The delusion that I was like other people had to be smashed. Smashed was a word I understood. We didn't have to have a lot of discussion on that. He directed my attention to what I have heard at every meeting that I've ever been to for many, many years, and it started to sound very canned to me, and I never paid any attention to what I was listening to. And it was what Sue was reading tonight. She was reading how it works. And she was reading the ABCs. Funny how they put this book in nice, simple terms, ABC, so that geniuses like me can understand. And she read that there were three pertinent ideas. A, that I was alcoholic and couldn't manage my own life. I've heard a lot of folks say that they really had an aversion to the word alcoholic. To me, it sounded a lot better than what they'd been calling me for six months before I got here. That my life was unmanageable. Well, by the time I got here, I really didn't have anything in my life to manage. No one in their right mind would have put any responsibility on me at all. My biggest decision that I had to make was whether to wear the jeans with the left cheek out or the jeans with the right cheek out. I mean, didn't matter to me if it was six in the morning or six at night. I didn't work and drink, so I didn't have to worry about work. I didn't understand about an unmanageable life. What was for me to manage? So I thought maybe it didn't apply to me. My sponsor said to me, What makes life good for people? I knew the answer to that one. It was how they feel. So he said, what makes life bad for people? I said, well, when they got bad feelings. And he said, has that got anything to do with what's going on around them? I said, of course it does. If you don't have a car, you're going to have bad feelings. And he said to me, then why aren't all the poor people in the world really sad? 
Well, that stumped me. Then he said, why aren't all the rich people in the world real happy then? And I got my first lesson in what's going on around me is not the criteria for what's going on inside of me. So my life certainly was unmanageable. I don't know about you, but I still can't do this, and I could do it even less at the time. I can't get up at 9 o'clock in the morning and say I'm going to be depressed till noon. And I'm going to shake that, and I'm going to be in good humor for the rest of the day. I'm not capable of that. And at that time, I was a victim of every rotten feeling that happened to pass by me, and it didn't seem to have to be a lot of reason to have it. And I couldn't get out of those rotten feelings. You know, I, I, I didn't know how to get rid of them. So my feelings were pretty unmanageable. When my feelings are unmanageable, my life's unmanageable. It's always been that way through sobriety and before, and I expect it will always continue to be that way for me. When my feelings are unmanageable, so is the rest of my life. Because I can't even notice the good things that are happening if I'm wallowing around in woe is poor me. I don't even notice anything good that's going on. Proposition B was that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. Well, I'm a pretty lucky girl. I've had uh, just about every representative of the helping professions uh, take a run at me, and I would nod and smile and say, yes, that makes perfectly good sense, and go out and get hammered immediately after. And you know, I guess one of the things that's very important to me is not to criticize people who made every effort to help me. I kind of uh, see it as uh, the same thing as a, ra a radio transmitter. They were transmitting properly. My receiver was turned off. I just couldn't hear. We weren't on the same frequency. That doesn't mean they're jerks. It means that I couldn't hear. So as many people who gave of their time and their expertise and their love to help me get sober, it just wasn't, it wasn't penetrating. I just wasn't able to hear. So every human power had failed me, particularly my own. I don't know how many times I would look at my mother's face and just feel the guilty so badly, I swear I'll never, ever put her in that position again. Because much like George was talking about tonight, I could walk out the front door for a package of cigarettes and show up in a month. And that puts a loving mother through an awful lot of pain. Fortunately for me, my dad was drinking at the time. He was kind of a nice alcoholic, you know. He, he just was more or less juiced all the time. Didn't change a lot one way or the other. He took up space. That was about it. And I always thought that that's what alcoholics were. I knew all I was was just a little more flamboyant than most, you know. So I didn't see where my alcohol use was doing anything good in my family. I couldn't stand the pain of looking at my parents when I had done something like that and put them through that kind of hell. I don't suppose my mother slept one night from the time I was 13 till the time I was 21. I doubt that she slept the night through. 
I solved that problem usually by leaving home. You know, that was the easiest way around it. It was better than quitting drinking. But I knew that, that I was incapable of maintaining a decision not to do that again. And that was very confusing for me because I was busy trying to hide the fact that I was crazy. Only crazy people do things that hurt them. And I didn't want to hurt my family. I didn't want to get fired from one more job. I didn't want to wake up in one more strange place. I didn't want to be sick anymore. But I knew very well I was going to do it again. It was just a matter of time. So I guess I was blessed or cursed with a horrible sense of reality all the way through. Well, if there's no human power that can relieve my alcoholism, I might as well just close the book and do exactly what it says in there. Go on to the bitter end, blotting out my intolerable situation as best I can. And that didn't seem like a treat. And the other option was to accept spiritual help. Oh, wonderful. And I had visions of me standing on a street corner with an orange robe banging on a tambourine. And I thought, oh, lovely. So my sponsor said to me, do you know what a spiritual experience is? Do you have any idea what a power greater than yourself is? Or did you just watch some TV show that impacted on you? Yeah. And I really couldn't give many answers. I had rejected um, the understanding that someone had tried to impress upon me during childhood. Just like the book said, because it didn't seem adequate. It didn't compute. Everybody's telling me to trust God. And in the next breath, they're telling me what he's going to do to me if I <laughs> screw up. And that didn't add up to me. It, it just didn't make any sense. And when I was a little kid, you know, I, I did all the things that other little kids do. I got sent to Sunday school. And again, it wasn't that people weren't transmitting to me properly. It was that I wasn't receiving properly. And I remember very clearly that one of the things that we were supposed to do was draw a picture of Jonah and the whale. And I remember sitting there thinking, tell me God is love, and I'm sure I didn't articulate it this way, you tell me God is love, and now you want me to draw a picture of how he made a big fish eat this guy. I don't think God is love. I think he's a dangerous, dangerous thing to be involved with. And I guess somehow I maintained that. For many years, and of course, with all the things that I had done that I ought not to have done, I figured I was going to be even in worse boat than old Jonah was. I didn't listen to the end of the story, needless to say, or recognize what what was trying to be told to me. I'm a pretty black and white person. You can't talk to me in parables or concepts. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, you got to you got to be pretty clear with me. It still is that way. And that's why my program is as simple today as it was then. I dare not go soaring off into spiritual stratospheres. I get lost. When I get in trouble, I get in trouble right here. <laughs> and I need a solution right here. And I need an understanding of a power greater than myself right here. I need to have a living 
power greater than myself within me. Well, when we talked about coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, I knew that self-centeredness was the root of my problem. I was always worrying about me, me, me. Everything that happened, if it didn't have to do with me, it might as well not have happened. It was insignificant. It just mattered less. If it had to do with me, then it mattered. I spent most of my life either getting into or out of trouble. That meant that everybody who was involved in my life was either somebody who fell on the side of the fence of getting me out of trouble or getting me into trouble. So everything that happened had to do with me. And as a result, I was afraid of most people when you're that dependent on them. There's a fear that goes with that. What if they run out on you? And everybody that I was afraid of, I also resented. I did not like them having the controls over me that they had. And they didn't necessarily see it as control, but I sure as hell did. I had to be nice to people I didn't want to be nice to, because they had something I needed. And I'd lived all my life that way, and as a result, I was full, absolutely full, of resentment, fear, and sex problems. Well, all of those have to do with, what about me? So I could understand what he was talking about when he was talking about self-centeredness being the root of my problem. Well, if that's the root of my problem, and above everything, I must be rid of this selfishness, the book tells me that, or it will kill me, those are words I understand, then the solution must be the opposite. It must mean selflessness. And to me, it's just this simple. Every time I have fear, it has to do with what about me. Every time I have resentment, it has to do with what about me. Every time I experience kindness, it has to do with what about you. Every time I experience consideration, it has to do with what about you. Every time I experience generosity, friendship, compassion, forgiveness, it has to do with what about you? And I think that that's selflessness. So my first concept of a power greater than myself was one word, selflessness. And it still is. For me, coming to believe that selflessness was the solution to my problem and that there was some power of selflessness. Now, where I was going to find that power, I had no idea. But it's said very clearly in this book, that's what this book's all about. This is its main purpose. So when you're all busy being afraid and full of resentment and full of sex problems and full of all of that stuff that they talk about, there's not a lot of ability or time or energy putting in, being put into being kind and considerate and generous, compassionate and forgiving. It can't be. I, and maybe if you're schizophrenic, it can be. I don't know. But I could never have two things going on at the same time. I could never be kind and mean at exactly the same moment. Well, I still can't. 
So all I had to really do was believe that there was a capacity somewhere for me to become selfless. And in that, I would be restored to sanity. Well, I've always been blessed with a real vivid imagination, and I always thought of insanity as, you know, being in a straitjacket going jibber-jibber. And I suppose that's the extreme of insanity. And it wouldn't be unlikely that somehow I'd wind up in that position one day. But I guess the way I see sanity is balance. There was no balance in my feelings. There was no balance in my life. And balance is very important for me in my sobriety. Every time I got something out of balance, I'm spiritually out of whack. And it's, it's one of the things that I have the most difficulty with. I came to believe that the power of selflessness would restore my life to some balance. Now that's hard to imagine that I would be concerned about restoring myself to some balance when I'd never had any. And maybe I was lucky. Maybe I was real lucky because I didn't have any notion of what you folks were talking about when you talked about a, a lifestyle, a way of life. I had no concept at all. I knew you people worked. I thought it was rather silly. I knew you people got up early in the morning. The only time I ever saw six in the morning was if I'd stayed up all night. And you guys did a whole bunch of really weird things. So I didn't need to be restored to sanity. I needed to have some in the first place. Coming to believe that that was possible led me into Proposition C, that God could and would if he were sought. By the time I came to you people the last time, I wasn't arguing about whether there was or there wasn't a God. I was just hoping there was. Just hoping there was. I became open-minded enough to hear so that when you transmitted, my receiver was picking up the odd cackle. What that meant to me was the very next line in the book, being convinced we were at step three. Now, I'd been around AA long enough to know you're supposed to have a lot of trouble with step three. Good attention getter. And by now, I wasn't getting all the attention that I'd been receiving up to that point, so I thought, well, I'd better have some problems with the third step. And my sponsor handled it beautifully. He said to me, if you're really having a problem with the third step, the one that you're on is the second step. Because each of these steps prepare you for the next one. That when you try to physically put one foot on a bottom stair and put your other foot on a twelfth stair, you're going to fall on your butt in the middle. And that's exactly what's going to happen to you if you try to do that with these steps. So if you're uncomfortable with taking on the next step, go back. Because if if I had really come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, then what would be the problem in making a decision to allow that to happen? Well, I didn't know how to make this third step decision at all. I had, I had no idea, and he again, again led me through the book. 
where the precise clear-cut instructions were laid out. There is a prayer in the third step that I was free to use, and since I didn't have a long career in prayer writing, it was recommended that I use the one that was there, even though the wording was quite optional. My sponsor said to me, since you don't know a whole lot about spiritual things, why don't you just take my word for it and use that one? The prayer was very interesting to me. It goes, God, I offer myself to thee. Now, I had no idea what that was about. To do with me and to build with me as thou wilt. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. Little Susie Choir Girl. I didn't understand those first two phrases and what they meant in my life. I did understand, relieve me of the bondage of self. So I was on the right track. Self-centeredness is the root of my problem. Selflessness is the solution to my problem. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. I had no idea what God's will was. I wasn't too sure I wanted to know. And I went to one of the meetings one night, and my friend George was talking at a meeting, and this fellow was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, worked for Daddy, got fired a few times. That's tough to do when you work for your father. George didn't work. George looked good. Spoiled rich kid. And he got into this program, and he was telling a story that night, as he, and he's talking about soaring off into spiritual stratospheres and really diving into his AA program, and he went to work that morning around 10, got behind his desk that was a big mahogany desk, put his feet up in $300 alligator shoes, and leaned back and said, okay, God, what can I do that's your will today? And he said, like a thunderbolt, the thought hit him. And he almost thought he heard a voice say, why don't you try working, George? <laughs> and I guess that's how I see God's will for me, to just do the very best I can with the tools that he gave me to work with. My brains, my energy, and my understanding of my fellow man. And I guess I don't, I don't see it as a whole lot deeper than that. Relieve me of the bondage of self, then I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. Wouldn't that be nice? I knew what one of my difficulties was. People weren't paying me enough. I don't know if anybody else in this room has had this experience, but once I got a little health back, I thought perhaps that the job I should go after was the vice presidency of the Ford Motor Company. And when it wasn't being offered to me, that has been my difficulty. The problem of self-centeredness has been removed extensively enough from me for me to live my life comfortably and to be of some conceivable use in this world other than to take up space. And it's through this program that that's happened. So those difficulties have been removed. Why? So that I can bear witness to those I would help of his power, his love, and his way of life. May I do thy will always, is how that prayer ends. Well, needless to say, I didn't have a whole lot of understanding 
of what that meant at the time. And my sponsor said, it doesn't matter. Do it and you will come to understand what you've done over a period of time. It's just like making a decision in the third step. It's just like making a decision to rob a bank. Not a whole lot happens one way or the other till you carry it out. I can make all the decisions to stay sober that I like unless I follow it up. I'm not going to stay sober very long. So what I wound up having to do was take a look at the fourth step. And I thought that that was an awful thing for me to have to do, and I thought it probably wasn't that necessary. Because after all, I knew what was wrong with me. No mystery. I'm self-centered. My sponsor pointed out to me that if I ever expected not to repeat the same things again, that would make me restless and irritable and discontented enough to once again seek the sense of ease and comfort that I had to find in alcohol before, that I had to know exactly where I stood and exactly what the problems were in my life. With pen in hand, off I went, prepared to write the story of my life. And he said, well, maybe you could follow the instructions laid out in the big book. You do them line by line and don't move on to the next line until you finish the first line. It was a new thought for me. I usually didn't follow instructions that well. But first of all, I read it. And I said to him, it only talks about resentments, fears, and sex problems here. I said, there's a whole bunch of other stuff wrong with me, you know. And he laughed and he said, no kidding. No. But he said, if you'll do it exactly as it's laid out in this book, you'll find that all those other things, whatever they may be, will fit into one or all three of those categories. Just do as you're told. Try it. So off I went to try it, knowing, of course, it wouldn't work. It was pointless exercise. When I looked at fear, I discovered that I was shot through with fear. Now, you wouldn't have thought that I was a frightened person because I was an obnoxious person. <laughs> But that was my way of dealing with fear. Have you ever watched a chihuahua when you're coming up the walk? You have more to say than a full-grown dog? That's what I was like. A lot to say, but if you took a step toward me, I backed up. Yapping all the way, but backed up. People didn't recognize that I was shy and frightened because of that kind of behavior. But I knew I was scared of people. I knew that I didn't want to ever really let you get to know me because then you'd know for sure I was crazy. I knew I was scared of what you'd do to me or what you wouldn't do for me. And I discovered that my whole fabric of my life was shot through with fear. Resentment? God, I didn't even know the meaning of the word when I got here. I knew all about hate. I would have cold hate. I didn't know about resentment. And triggered temper, mouth always in gear before the brain was. And I had a whole list of resentments, and there was hardly anybody not on it. I didn't think I had any sex problems because I wasn't married. <laughs> what could be the problem? I discovered that probably I had a very large sex problem. I don't know if any of the gals in here can identify with this, but in my life, 
Women, at best, were a nuisance, and at worst, they were insignificant. Uh, They just were not there. (laughs) I never drank with anybody better looking than myself, because that meant that they were competition. I didn't want any competition. So that took care of roughly half the human race. The other half, I think they call those men, those were Cadillacs, those were rides home, those were job prospects, those were people that sort of held your head up over the toilet bowl so you didn't drown, (laughs) those were people who posted bail, and that took care of roughly the other half of the human race. Sex problems? I'm not sure that they're referring specifically to the sexual act in this book. I think they're referring to relationships, intimate relationships with people. I didn't have any. I had a pretty big problem. I didn't know any people. And the ones that I suspected were real people, like my mom, who was a genuine human being, who really did care, who had selflessness, I avoided like the plague. God, I felt so guilty around them. Well, no wonder I drank. If you felt like that all your life, wouldn't you drink? No wonder I was restless, irritable, and discontented. No wonder alcohol was my solution and not my problem, because not everybody out there could see that that was going on in here. And if there's one thing that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is never, ever, ever to judge myself's insides by your outsides. I'll always lose. Always. I have to judge my insides by how I feel about what I'm doing. Well, the fourth step was a lot of bad news to me, and in a lot of ways it was good news to me. At least I specifically knew what my problems were. And then, of course, I was forced to go on to the fifth step. I didn't want to go on to the fifth step. I thought I had done well enough by being aware of what things were wrong in my life and what I had to do something about. But in the fifth step, my sponsor said to me, read the first page of the fifth step. And I read it to him. He said, read it again. And I read it to him again. And he said, describe to me your understanding of the word vital. Because there was a line in there that said, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. And he said, does that say optional, Heather? Does it say, if we skip this optional step, we may not overcome drinking? Well, I was in too deep now to get out. I'd already done enough hard work. And it was hard. I didn't find any of this a pleasure. And I just kept remembering to ask this power greater than myself for this willingness. And I didn't even know if there really was a power greater than myself. I told you I was just hoping that there was. When I went to do my fifth step, my sponsor said to me, I will set a fifth step appointment up for you if you like. Or you can do it yourself. Well, I thought that maybe if I let him do it, I might, he might forget 
and then it would be his fault and not mine, and I could be blue-eyed innocence one more time. He didn't forget, and he set up a fifth-step appointment for me with a member of the clergy. Well, my imagination went to work. I just knew that I was going to go to that fifth step. There was going to be some big guy about seven feet tall wearing a black robe with a white collar knock your eye out. And I was just going to tell him the first teeny-weeny little thing that I did. And he was going to say, Oh, God, Heather, you didn't do that. I knew. But I had the willingness to go because I did not want to drink again at that point. I didn't recognize that a change was happening for me. I really didn't see it myself. Off I went. In that, in that period of time, it was in the days of miniskirts. And I had some miniskirts that were almost four inches long, I mean. <laughs> and I knew you didn't wear that to go and see a member of the clergy. I mean, I'd been raised right. Well, I had everything out of my closet on trying to find something appropriate to go and see a member of the clergy. I took my makeup off a half a dozen times, put it back on. No, I can't wear that. That's too heavy. You don't go and see a... Finally, I wound up putting my hair in pigtails with pink ribbons so that I'd look innocent. I completely missed the line that says we pocket our pride and go to it. I completely missed that. Because for me, life still was packaging. If the package looked good, and then it must be good. Very superficial, very shallow. Well, my sobriety was to give me something later that knocked the hell right out of that. Well, I went and did this fifth step, and then, of course, I found a fellow human being full of understanding, non-judgmental. And I got through this fifth step and off I went. About a year and a half later, I phoned this guy to make an appointment for somebody I was sponsoring. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, but I did my fifth step with you. My name is Heather. He said, oh, yes, of course I remember you, Heather. He said, I even remember what you said. The blood just stopped cold in my veins. I, oh. He said, when you were all done, you looked up at me. And you said, do you think I got a half a chance? I told you I didn't know what a spiritual experience was. And as I look back now, the promises that were laid out in the fifth step had started to come true. I had begun to have a spiritual experience. Because in our book, a spiritual experience as it pertains to those of us in AA is a huge emotional displacement and rearrangement. Ideas, attitudes, and emotions, which were once the guiding forces in the lives of people like us, are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate. I've told you how I felt throughout these first five steps. And there I was saying, do you think I got a half a chance? Something was changing. Something was happening. I'm running out of time, so I can't, I can't go any further with these steps. But it was at that point that I started to really believe 
that this stuff was real and it could happen for me. At the end of the ninth step, it talks about the promises that come through. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, I didn't find it a treat. And it was painstaking for me. The first promise was that we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. The freedom that I have now is the freedom to be myself. People used to say to me, Heather, why don't you just be yourself? And I'd say, which one was it that you liked? <laughs> the new happiness is that my happiness no longer depends on what you do to make me happy. Give you an example. When I was going to my AA group and they were giving out birthday cakes, I thought that was a pretty Mickey Mouse type of thing. All it meant really was that I had to sit still for an extra half hour and keep quiet a half an hour longer. Needless to say, I hadn't had my first birthday. And some guy got up there to get his birthday cake and I felt this lump in the back of my throat. He wasn't even a good friend of mine. Nobody was. And I felt this lump in the back of my throat and I felt tears stinging my eyes and I, I kind of felt my mind go to mush. Because gangsters don't cry, eh? <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, I'm going to cry. And nobody's even hit me. And so, uh, of course, the only thing to do is leave the room and fast. So I up and off my chair and I scoot out the back door and my sponsor up and off his chair and scoots out the back door after me. And he said, well, where do you think you're going? The meeting's not over. I said, I, I can't go back in there. I'm going to cry. And he said, well, welcome to the human race. Get your little tail back in there. Sit down and cry. Well, what a strange experience. See, something wonderful was happening for that man, and I understood that. And it touched me. And it didn't make me any gold, you know. It was the first time something had really touched me. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I keep stepping in this hole. I'm break my neck here in a minute. All I wanted when I got here was instant amnesia, and I wanted you to have it too. Well, I don't regret my past because I was out at Stony Mountain Federal Penitentiary visiting a friend of mine. Most of my friends lived there. And I had been sober for about three months, and there was a little gal who used to drink with me in the what we called the St. Charles Finishing School for Young Ladies down on Albert Street. Every town's got one. And there wasn't a lot of talk of big books or Alcoholics Anonymous there. And she was there visiting a friend of hers, and I had never, I didn't spot her. She spotted me. She said to her friend, Is that Heather over there? I thought she was dead. Because in our crowd, if you weren't around for three months, you were dead or in jail. And he said, Yeah. And Pam said, Uh, Gee, she looks happy. What's she into? And uh, this guy explained that I was into AA. And she said, is that some kind of new drug? <laughs> yeah. He explained it as best he could to her. And she said, if Heather can get straight, anybody can, even me. And that was about 13 years ago. And she's never had to have another drink since. So I might be the only copy of the big book anybody ever sees. And I hope I never forget that lesson. I didn't even know she was watching. So I don't regret my past. She would never have, she would never have known about Alcoholics Anonymous. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. 
Serenity is when my insides match the smile on my outside. Serenity to me is knowing that regardless of the problems that come my way, I will never have to drink again, providing I've placed myself in the hands of the people in this program and God. No matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. I told you when I first got here, I, want, I wanted the vice presidency of the Ford Motor Company. Instead, what they did was they got me a job in the back shop of an automotive agency, working with 15 guys, loading and unloading trucks, grinding valves and bathing motors. And I had to wear steel-toed work boots that were heavier than me. <laughs> and about, after about three days, the novelty of a girl working back there wore completely off. And they just wanted me to haul my weight or get lost. And I hated that job. I came out of that job dirty, grubby, every day. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me because now in my group, sometimes there'd be a guy come in six, seven feet tall, about 240, 250 pounds, and tell me he's not well enough to work. And I don't regret my past. I wish to shut the door on it. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear feeling of uselessness disappears when I get useful, not one minute before. I don't know if any of you have gone through this. I went through my pious period where I got real modest. People would ask me to do something and say, oh, I couldn't do that. You'd better get somebody more competent. My sponsor said to me, how competent do you have to be to put the ashtrays out? (laughs) Or sweep the floor after the meeting. Self-pity disappears when I become interested in others. I can't become interested in others if I show up precisely on the dot of 8.30 for the meeting and leave at 9.29. Think about the meaning of the word meeting. That's where you meet. What do you do after you meet? If I don't spend time with people, I can't develop the ability for compassion. It doesn't just come on automatic pilot. It doesn't drop into the back of your noodle have to spend time with people. And once I started to spend time with people, whether I wanted to or not, I discovered that sometimes I felt sorry that something bad had happened to somebody. And as long as I was feeling bad that something bad had happened to somebody else, I wasn't feeling bad about me not having a Cadillac. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change, and so it has. The fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. The fear of people left me when it was replaced with faith in God. I used to be worrying about things a lot. My sponsor would say to me, did you ask God to look after it? And I'd say, yes, I did. And he said, well, why don't you believe he's going to? When you've asked, then have faith that you'll get what you need. When I try to be right with people and rectify it with God later, is when I get into trouble. If I do what I believe a power greater than myself would have me do and be, then I'm automatically right with the people. I don't have to be afraid of them. Economic insecurity leaves when you show up at work every day. Amazing thing. (laughs) We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. I don't have 10,000 world crises per day. They still happen. I mean, I don't have a tame life. But somehow the impact on me is not one of disaster. 
The last promise is a promise upon which I try to base my entire life today. And that's the recognition that God is doing for me what I could not do for myself. See, first God gave me the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want those. He gave them to me anyway. He gave me a kit of spiritual tools laid out at my feet and he gave me a very special man to teach them to me. And I sure as hell didn't want that. All I wanted was this guy's car. And the third thing that he gave me and that he continues to give me is the willingness to do what is necessary when I don't want to do it. And so if you're new here tonight, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults freely to him and your fellows. Give freely of what you find and join us. Clear away the wreckage of your past. We shall be with you. See, those aren't just words in the book. With you. In the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for having me tonight. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.